and welcome to Cloud Ninefin, the podcast where we talk about all things credit, high yield bonds, leverage loans, CLOs, private equity, and private credit, distressed debt. You name it, we probably talk about it more than a doctor or psychiatrist would recommend. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and this week I'm joined by Eric Mueller of Oak Hill Advisors. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to have you in the office physically. This is going to be the final podcast we record in this particular debt-saddled co-working space before you upsize to another one down the street. So you're part of Ninefin history. Here. Excellent. Best for last. <laughs> um, so speaking of company history, Oak Hill is an increasingly well-known face in the world of larger cap private credit deals. And you've obviously been with the firm for some time. So maybe before we get started, you could do a, a quick intro, kind of how you ended up in private credit and what you focus on uh, the most at, at Oak Hill. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for having me. So yeah, so my background is I spent most of my career at Goldman Sachs. I started at Goldman in investment banking. And then I left there, went to a private equity firm for a few years, but then was uh, recruited to go back to Goldman in 2006 to join Goldman's mezzanine fund, which was private credit, although we didn't really call it private credit back then. Mm -hmm. But it was a very large fund that was doing kind of private high yield. It was an alternative to going to the bond market. And uh, and then after after that vehicle, we got into the loan business, and uh, it ended up be, becoming a big one of the bigger platforms in the space. And I was one of the partners helping run that business. I got a call probably now seven years ago from a mutual friend and client of OHA who said, "Hey, OHA is really looking to build out its private credit business, and you'd love it there, and you should take a meeting." And I knew the firm by reputation. We were actually in some deals together. Glenn August, our founder, is kind of a legend in, in the leveraged finance world, and Alan Schrager is one of our senior partners. Uh, we knew each other a little bit and had a, a lot of mutual friends. And so I took a meeting, and we ended up dating for about a year. Uh, but then after that, I got excited about the opportunity, and I thought that uh, OHA had a lot of elements that would make it successful in private credit. And so I took the plunge, and I'm now in my sixth year at OHA. Nice. Um, and, you know, clearly a good decision because uh, to your point about potential, Oak Hill's kind of been popping up on some bigger deals recently. Yeah. So what's what's behind that? Is that a kind of is that a conscious move? Like what's the, the what are the machinations? Behind sure. That? Yeah. So we we've we've done private credit for 20 years, but it was much more opportunistic in the early days and just a function of finding interesting things to do. We have a lot of multi-strategy uh, sort of best ideas type capital. And so in the in the past, when we found interesting private credit opportunities, it would go into those vehicles. And when if, if you think about just sort of the history of private credit and how it's developed, a lot of the private credit firms cropped up post great financial crisis. But some of those early activities were really for more middle market or lower middle market type companies. And from a credit risk perspective, OHA has always focused on larger companies with a belief that larger companies made for better credit bets. And it wasn't really until you started to see large companies start turning to the private markets for solutions that OHA said, hey, this is a big opportunity that we want to be a part of. We think we can generate good returns for our investors. And so let's make a major push. And so I joined uh, in 2018, uh, and it's now become really probably the biggest part of our, of our business uh, for the firm. We've deployed almost $30 billion um, in the last five or six years, and we do things up and down the capital structure, and I'm, I'm happy to talk more about OHA, but but we, we in general are 
uh, opportunistic in terms of thinking about private credit opportunities, where you can find them in different market opportunities in different parts of the capital structure. And so we've kind of built our business in that way to kind of take advantage of, of the way that we're set up. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that word opportunistic. Yeah, because um, I was doing a, a, a sort of quick and dirty analysis of some private credit marketing materials, mm. um, pulling out of word cloud. Yeah, earlier, because I'm w working on a uh, we are working on a piece about what opportunistic credit actually means. Right. And um, as one person we spoke to for that piece put it, there's been some kind of definition creep a little bit. Sure. And <laughs> kind of the, the way I see it, and I'm curious to hear your view on this, I feel like the uh, maybe a turning point for opportunistic credit was COVID, mm. where suddenly it sort of, it went from in the past being viewed as maybe like, or having a, a kind of a, a reputation as slightly predatory or, you know, credit opportunities funds were sort of creating opportunities by manufacturing defaults or right. priming deals and that kind of thing in the sort of zero interest rate era. And then COVID came along suddenly everyone needed the capital that those funds had, the right. sort of flexible capital. And that sort of um, that sort of changed the the aspect of the market a little bit. Right. And I feel like these successive waves of volatility since then, Russia, the UK pension crisis, right. um, SVB, like all that kind of stuff has, has just created more and more opportunities and everything's still kind of dislocated. So yeah, look, I think there's a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got on, on one end of the spectrum, distressed debt. Mm-hmm. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got performing lower risk. Uh, maybe it's below investment grade, but you've got, you know, single Bs or, or, or mm. double B credit or, or, or what have you. Listen, I, I think in private credit, as we think about what opportunistic means for us, it is both being flexible. Like we, So I, I would say that our firm is, is very much a relative value oriented place best ideas. Mm -hmm. And and I mentioned before, we have a lot of kind of multi-strategy uh, capital that says, go find me the best opportunities today. Sometimes that's going to be in distressed. Sometimes that's going to be in private credit. Sometimes it'll be liquid trading. And then within private credit, sometimes that looks like a unitrach deal. Sometimes it looks like a second lien or it could be pref equity. And so, and and by the way, that's what private equity firms are looking for. They, they, they want partners that are, that are flexible, that are kind of solutions oriented and can sort of follow a capital structure or a situation and provide whatever they're looking for in that, in that given opportunity set. And mm -hmm. so we've tried to set up our business in a way to have the flexibility to deploy capital when we think it's interesting and also do that in different market environments. So you, you mentioned COVID probably 25% of our activity in that year was for liquidity financings. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't call them distressed, right? It was companies that were, that were every location of their company was shut down right, and right. they were gonna have a liquidity problem in the third quarter. And so you were making the bet that someday COVID was going to end and that the world was gonna reopen. Not really distressed, but opportunistic. Right, like a sort of bridge to better days financing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, more, yeah, more almost more like bridge financing, even though they they weren't necessarily structured that way. Right. But, and and so we did a lot of that type of activity during that period, and then when the world started to reopen and you started to see transactions again, we sort of shifted, and that that was kind of when this whole mega tranche unitranche mm -hmm. phenomenon started to to really pick up steam. Right. Yeah. 
So that's a good segue to my next question, actually. Everyone talks about how much bigger Unitranches have got. And yeah. Whether it's Unitranche or ARR loans or whatever, I guess probably the most likely candidate for this size of deal would be Unitranche. But there's been talk recently of a $10 billion private credit deal being within reach. Yes. Um, do you think that's realistic? I do think it's realistic. I think that you would require... Uh, I don't know about a majority, but probably a majority of the large players in the, you know in this market to participate. And mm -hmm. I think it has to be the right deal and it has to be the right leverage point and the right pricing. But I do think so. I do think and, and that instead of being a three or four handed deal, that might be a dozen or mm -hmm. maybe 15 lenders. But I do think you could put together a $10 billion deal today. Right, right. I mean, I guess one question I have around that is, at what point is it effectively a syndicated deal? Like that, look, that, that's a great question. And it's, it's one of the things that we, we struggle with sometimes because the, the, the different private equity firms take a different approach to what they want in their private credit mm. group, right? There are some sponsors that would be fine with having two dozen lenders. Right. And as a private credit provider, since the asset since the loan is is fairly illiquid, mm -hmm. the worst thing that, that for us would be to have something that is illiquid, but that gets marked, right? If you have two dozen people in a syndicate and somebody somehow sells it and it gets put on the screens, right. now I'm taking a markdown on something that I don't necessarily think should be marked down, right? right? And so we think that we, we prefer the private deals to stay private. And, mm -hmm. and I think that the smaller group deals um, are more attractive from, you know, from that perspective. Having said that, if you have a $10 billion deal, or even a $5 billion deal that have a number of lenders, uh, inevitably there's going to be some players that at some point want liquidity. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, so thinking about the, the 10 billion unitronch, I feel like I'm talking about the 100 foot wave or yeah. something. Um, yeah. uh, in order for that kind of deal to happen, yeah. like, do you think there would maybe have to be some sort of fairly strict lockup agreement or trading restrictions that everyone would have to sign on to to avoid well, the situation you're talking about? Yeah, listen, I think that it, it, it depends on the sponsor. So all of these deals have transfer restrictions. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted in any of these deals, every one of these private credit deals. So if you wanted to sell your position, the sponsor or the company uh, and the agent have to approve that transfer. Mm -hmm. And so the it, it really depends on the sponsor. There are some sponsors that don't care who ultimately who holds the paper. And then there are some sponsors that do care. And I, I would say probably more care than not in terms of who holds their paper. Um, and so a lot of them don't want it to trade, which is, mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of talk about the potential liquidity in this market. And there's different banks that have talked about wanting to trade private credit. And I think that as the asset class grows, I think it's inevitable that there will be more of that. But I don't think that it's going to be, it, it's not going to be a straight path because I think there's counterbalancing um, sort of desires on the part of the issuers to not have it trade. So sort of kind of pursuant to that, I feel like all of this talk of a $10 billion unitranche or whatever, like that inevitably attracts the attention of, of regulators and it kind of it, it grabs headlines and, and that kind of thing and the more that private credit has kind of um just surged forward over recent years the more you've seen 
politicians talking about it and regulators starting to kind of hone, hone in on it a little bit. Um, and people quote vastly different numbers in terms of the size of the market. So right. take these numbers with a pinch of salt. I, I read $1.4 trillion market, that kind of thing. But if you take that one, I'm sure there's many caveats to that number. Take that one at face value. It's about the size of the leveraged loan market. Yep. Um, you know, given that the size is roughly the same, why isn't the private credit market already subject to the same regulatory scrutiny as the leveraged loan market? Yeah. Well, so most of the private credit firms are regulated. We, we, we're certainly regulated by the SEC. I think the difference is that the banks are the access point for the loan market mm -hmm. and the banks are the ones that are underwriting and the banks have a, a heavier regulatory overlay. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the leverage lending guidelines, for example, apply to banks, but they don't apply to firms like ours. Right. And so I, I do think more regulation is, is probably inevitable. Um, I think that the, one, of the, one of the questions is, as, as you see a broader group of investors, in particular the wealth channel, uh, start to get involved in the asset class. And, and you're seeing it now with more BDCs, non-traded BDCs, uh, and the popularity of this in, in, in individuals' investment portfolios, I think that it just invites more scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that's lost, though, is that the asset class has performed quite well so far, right? We haven't seen, we haven't seen massive defaults. We haven't seen private credit vehicles in general uh, lose money for their investors. And so I think that if the asset class were to go through a real default cycle and you had some real losers and those happen to be in the hands of individual investors, could that invite more scrutiny? I think it certainly could. Mm -hmm. So I was going to save this question until later, but it, you kind of just touched on it there. Um, in terms of the default cycle and, and not seeing massive failures in, in private credit, yeah, we, we you kind of made the point that we haven't seen that massively yet. But there has kind of, at least from the reporting that we do, been an uptick in the number of companies that private credit firms are taking the keys to. Yep. Um, so I don't know how you guys define it in terms of like what counts as a real failure and how long you give it to determine what recovery you have from a company that you take right. ownership of through right. a, a, you know, a creditor relationship. Sure. Um, but like, do you, do you consider that kind of activity, private credit firms taking ownership of, of companies that they were senior lenders to or whatever, as, uh, you know, as, as distress in, in the private credit market? Do you see it as a sort of um, a, a failure or are you confident that returns are, are going to be forthcoming like once, right. once the, the things have been turned around and value has been extracted from that, that equity stake? So I think it depends on your strategy and what you're what you're trying to accomplish. So we go into private credit with a view that it's meant to be performing credit. Mm -hmm. And we have a big distress business, but we are, I like to say, we're not looking for trouble in our private credit business, but inevitably people make mistakes, right? You make credit mistakes, uh, you over lever things. Sometimes, sometimes you get the risk that you take, mm -hmm. right? You identify a bunch of risks and diligence and sometimes those come to pass. And so I think that, that I would say that you can have a failure in the sense that maybe you got something wrong, but ultimately, if you can recover, if you can recover par, and in some cases you can recover more than par, then I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily consider that a failure uh, for you know 
for, for that investment. I mean, defaults are kind of inevitable mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in credit investing. We, we go for zero defaults, but, but people make mistakes. Right, right. Uh, but in terms of the amount of time it takes to recover right. par, if, if it is a par recovery, um, how does that process impact kind of returning capital to investors, that, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I, listen, I think that that you sort of have to take them as they come, right? So if sometimes things take longer to work out, you just have to hold on to it. And and I think that that our funds are structured in a way in general to where you're you're able to be patient with uh with with, with an investment if you had to take the keys to a company, then I think you generally are going to have the flexibility to hold on to it until it's time to sell and mm-hmm. to maximize value. And if you don't want to hold on to it, if you want to offload that investment, because you, for whatever reason, you don't think the recovery is going to be worth what you initially did. Right. Um, who's the natural buyer there? Is it going to be a distressed fund or is it going to be another private credit fund? Um, given that, you know, the market's competitive and a lot of the private credit funds that might be the buyer yeah, I, might have looked at the credit already and passed on it. Yeah, I think it. that's it's another good question. I think that it depends, again, depends on your capabilities and your strategy, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a firm that has real distress capability and workout capability and and you know how to take the keys to a company and and replace management sit on the board and and drive value then i think you're going to be more inclined to hold on to it i think if and i if you are a firm that that isn't really set up or equipped to handle that type of activity then i think there are there's a lot of distress capital uh, there's a lot of opportunistic capital, and it could be other private credit firms that that are willing to kind of buy that paper, and and work it out. Right. Now it does ca- it, that does cut against one of the underlying benefits that you sell as a private credit provider, which right. is that I'm your lender, you know, yeah. and and well, I'm gonna, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to hold it is one of the fundamental sort of propositions that that, right. that when you're pitching business, right? Yeah. Do Do you think? that sort of value proposition is going to have a bit of a reckoning over the next couple of years? I guess it depends how severe the distress cycle is. I think but. it depends on the, the distress cycle. And I think that I think it's in those moments that, that different firms show their stripes in terms of how they treat lenders. And we try to operate in a zone of reasonableness, right? So we're not in private credit getting into these names because we want to own the business. Mm-hmm. If we have to own the business, we will, but we're not, that's not the objective day one. Right. And so if the sponsor is willing to support the company and inject more capital and kind of do the right things, then we're going to be as flexible as we can be, recognizing that we're fiduciaries. Mm-hmm. And we're going, to, we're going to try to be constructive partners. And so I think that we, we, we have, it has been untested. I think in in large part, and I do think that that it is likely that we're we're heading into a a, a part of the cycle where you're going to see more defaults, mm-hmm. particularly if you look at the 2019 to 2021 deal activity, and a lot of those capital structures were built when rates were one percent, and now they're five percent, and there's a lot of companies that are really tight on free cash flow, mm-hmm. and so what do you do if you're a private equity firm and you have uh, a leverage problem, but your equity isn't impaired or your equity is not wiped out. Mm. And you, do you want to commit more equity capital to protect what you have, or are you going to hand over keys? It's right. and it's we're we're just at the beginning of that of that dance. I think. Here's a question for you: mm. Do you think it's possible that we are already in a distress cycle, but we just don't know it yet 
because so much of the market, so much more of the market than previous distress cycles is now owned by private credit. And it's not liquid. It's not like, you know, there's not daily marks on it. Um, you can kind of amend and pretend a little bit. Well, you, you also have a leveraged loan market that is basically almost 100% covenant light, right? So mm -hmm. it, it, it's a little bit of it's a little bit of both. Yeah, right? like that's the, a fair yeah, point. The, by the time you actually have a default, things are things are really bad. things are really bad. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I think that's fair. I, I would say that we have been, we have been, we have been, I guess, somewhat impressed with the ability of private equity firms over the last six nine months to take out cost to have more austerity measures at their private equity at, at their at their portfolio companies. We've seen a lot of companies that are acquisition stories mm -hmm. slow down the acquisition pace right. integrate what they have actually go get the synergies that they thought they were going to get uh take price and just sort of keep things going to mm -hmm. try to get to a, a a better place so i'd say that earnings have probably surprised to the upside in the last couple of quarters mm -hmm. but we'll see and i think that we are you know, the, the, there there are a lot of mixed signals in terms of what you're seeing in the economy and uh, you, you can look at the S&P being up a lot, but then if you strip out uh, anything sort of AI-related, uh, the S&P is up 4%. The Russell is uh, you know, up just a little bit this year, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it is, uh, we, we think it's a pretty uncertain time. We're not, we, we, we are definitely not uh, sort of saying that, uh, we're not making the call that we're gonna have a soft landing or that we're not gonna have a recession or that, or, or that we're not in one. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um... So I had a bunch of other questions lined up on regulation before we went off on a, on a very interesting <laughs> tangent. Um, I'll throw just one of them your way because it's kind of a slightly hot button issue, I guess, maybe not as much for bigger firms like Oak Hill. You guys have a BDC, which is another way of achieving kind of much this, the same goal, but season and sell, right? Right. Season and sell stakes um, for listeners that don't know, essentially a maneuver that funds especially private credit funds can use to uh sell a fund stake to a foreign lp in a tax efficient way or a more tax efficient way right. um right correct have i got that right yeah so so if you are if you are an investor from a, a country that doesn't have a tax treaty with the us mm -hmm. and you, you are not allowed to engage in loan origination, which is considered a trade or business, business of loans. And, yeah. and it creates what's called effectively connected income or ECI. Okay. And that makes it prohibitive, prohibitively expensive mm -hmm. uh, to, to engage in the activity. And so- Because you get charged federal income tax. Yeah, right? with big, big withholding tax, it just makes it uneconomic. And so there's a number of ways or different types of vehicles that, that offshore investors use to be able to get access to the activity. And one of them is one. One of them, actually, probably the most efficient is a BDC, because it's a U.S. corporate and it effectively blocks the the it it, it blocks the uh, the income from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But uh, season and sell is a popular uh, methodology to to, uh, to to for offshore investors to invest in the asset class. Mm -hmm. And what I'd say is that there's different flavor. There's certainly more scrutiny. Uh, the IRS has has um, Started looking closer into season and sell right. in the last couple of years. Well, that was that was going to be my question, actually, not to interrupt you, but just to add the extra color. Um, there's this lawsuit going through the courts at the moment against a, a now defunct hedge fund 
um, it's a season and sell lawsuit. And if the IRS wins that lawsuit, the argument that we've heard from a lot of sources is that um, that could make season and sell just less of a viable strategy and that that could disproportionately impact smaller private credit funds who don't have the wherewithal and the kind of um, logistical and kind of economic resources to do something like a BDC, for example. Do you I, think that's a credible argument? I think that's a credible argument. Mm -hmm. I think the there are different flavors of season and sell, and and there's different degrees, and it depends on your tax guidelines and how you know, is the seasoning vehicle taking risk? How long does it hold on to it? Different seasonings of it's different season se and sell. <laughs> yeah, uh, different seasoning periods. There's also just is the vehicle taking risk? Because mm -hmm. if you you could hold on to something, and if you are actually taking market risk or credit risk, then is that really you know that that, that is really just looks like a secondary trade. Right, right, right. So, but having said that, to answer your question, I do think that that is a credible argument that if you want to have a BDC, it is an enormous lift just operationally uh, from a, a regulatory standpoint. Uh, you have public filings and uh, they, they are more expensive vehicles to operate. Right. And, so, and it, it, it does require a level of sophistication uh, and the ability to operate a BDC alongside other vehicles that you might manage brings other complexities. And so I do think that it it would advantage larger firms uh, in, in that regard. And I guess following question to that is going back to the regulation point, like this is just one example um, of an argument that people often make, which is that increased regulation in the private credit market is again going to disproportionately disadvantage smaller players um, and just hand even more competitive advantage to the big guys, you know, the household names, the ones with multiple vehicles, with BDCs, that kind of thing. Um, do you think we're going to end up with a private credit market that is kind of just dominated by these big mega firms, um, e either the, the Blue Owls, the Aries, the, the Oak Hills, um, and on, on one side, the sort of more or less pure play, like direct lending, Right. businesses and, and the uh, the giant asset managers like PGM and that kind of thing who sort of right. bought their way into the market. Right. Is that what it's going to look like? So it's a good question. I mean, listen, I, I there, there's no question that, that on the on the capital raising side, there are haves and have nots. And it is um, uh, th th there's no question that the larger players uh, are are capturing more of that fundraising dollar. And, and certainly if you have the ability to have a BDC and can distribute that BDC and, and, and raise capital around it and tap into that, that wealth channel, that is, there are a lot of capital flows heading that direction. And so mm. if you are able to tap into that market, you're gonna have a big advantage in capital raising. I think that the, 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 the counter is that the market opportunity is growing massively, massively. So when you, you were saying this before, that the private credit market now rivals the size of the loan market. I think that's right. If you look at, at any number of different research analysts or, or projections, a lot of people think that private credit is going to surpass the loan market in the next five years, just mm. in terms of size. And so while the large players are getting larger, uh, you are seeing more new entrants. Every day there's a new story about this bank or that bank or uh, spin outs of, of uh, firms setting up new vehicles and, and and going out trying to raise money and so i think it just speaks to i think the competitive uh sort of the, the competitive entrance 
speaks to the just the, the growing opportunity. So the pie is growing, but there's no question that the larger players have an advantage, certainly in the large cap space or the larger cap private credit space where we play. Mm. I think that that if you are looking at true middle market or lower middle market, there's still going to be a place for those those types of funds because the deals aren't as big and mm. uh, and and the like. But uh, but there's obviously big sophisticated players in that part of the market as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, final question, mm-hmm. kind of on the same theme. Do you think banks can ever truly compete in the private credit space? And when I say banks, I mean these direct lending units, balance sheet lending units that have they've been there for a while at some banks, but especially in the past year or so, JP Morgan's got one, Barclays is talking about one, that right. kind of thing. Like, do right. you think they can ever compete with, you know, guys like you? So I speak from experience, right? Because I was at, I was at, I was at a right. bank. Goldman has a big, very successful platform in private credit. Uh, it is, uh, and Morgan Stanley has a, has a private credit business. It sits more in their asset management part of their firm. But, mm-hmm. but uh, so I, I think it's possible. We have a joint venture with the Bank of Montreal, um, I think it's challenging for banks. Banks have a whole host of other challenges that independent firms like ours don't, right? They have more regu- more regulation, like we've been talking about on this, right. on this yeah. podcast. They have changing pulls on their balance sheet in terms of capital charges, different priorities at the banks. And I, I would say what I've seen over time, and I've been in the market now for quite a while, is and you've also seen it private equity which is that the times when it is most interesting for private credit when markets are dislocated are the times when banks tend to pull back on risk Mm -hmm. and their willingness to hold the single name hold position size goes down and maybe regulatory capital charges against this type of activity goes up Mm. and it makes it hard to compete in certain time you know in, in certain parts of the market Right. Um, Especially post SBB. Right? Yes. Ex- yeah. Exactly. And by the way, you, you think about the regional banks and and the impact that 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 fallout's having on private credit, and it's I think going to be a bit of a lag effect. But a lot of those regional banks are big providers of credit facilities to private credit providers. Right. Asset yeah. facilities, um, uh, s- subscription facilities, which we rely on on those for uh, you know for. Uh, managing capital flows drives returns in some cases, uh, and so uh, and you guys can't compete on the cost of capital side either, right? In terms of it, compete with banks, you know the, their overall cost of capital is always going to be significantly cheaper than than a sort of pure play private. It it, it depends. It depends on on what they are. I mean, we have you know we have LPs and and we mm-hmm. we talk about delivering a certain type of return profile, right? And banks have a different set of constraints and they're, they're trying to drive their, they're trying to drive earnings growth and they're trying to, yeah. and, they, and they, there's competing capital. Like, are they supposed to commit a dollar to this trading activity? This trading desk is looking for more capital or is it supposed to go into the next unitronch that they're going to hold on the books? Right. right? And then or, the, the extra layer of sophistication of regulation. and Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. So I think it's hard for banks to compete. It is also hard to separate the decision making between relationship lending and principal investing mm. and they're different and goldman's been able to figure it out over time but there's pulls on banks right you if you have a sponsor coverage banker that originates a private credit deal or a potential private credit deal and wants to do it on balance sheet 
you need to have somebody that is a credit picker, that is an investor that says, listen, I, I want to hold this loan for five or seven years mm -hmm. as opposed to, hey, I want to, I want to clip a fee. And, and so sometimes you're just, you, you have different people in, in banks that are trying to answer different questions. If that, if, you know, the, per perfectly smart people, it's just a question of what, what are your priorities, right? You have a client facing person that is saying, hey, I really want you to do this loan for me. And they're going to their, their coverage salesperson. They want to do the loan. You need to have a risk function that that is able to say, you know, no, that doesn't make sense for us from a risk standpoint. And so, and that's hard in, in banks. That's mm -hmm. hard in banks. But having said that, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't count them out. They have very formidable origination capability. Very formidable origination. Um, and and so, if you can figure out how to do it uh, in in an effective way, banks can be really effective in the business. And and that's you know not uh, not that this is meant to be a commercial for us, but our joint venture with with uh, the Bank of Montreal is set up in a way to take advantage of their origination capability, but you know sort of our credit, uh, you know sort of investing acumen and 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 track record and, and history. Um, and and so. You know, there's there's different ways to do it, but I think that uh, I don't count banks out, but I think it's harder for them to compete. Probably a, a few more partnerships like that one on the way. Yeah, I and I, I think you're 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 actually seeing it. Barclays announced something that I think I don't know much about it, but seems like it would be similar mm -hmm. uh, to what we're trying to accomplish. And right. and there's there's some other other joint ventures out there as well. Mm. All right, well we should probably wrap it up there. Okay, covered a lot of ground. Great, um, but thanks so much for coming in. It's been it's been a pleasure. Great, thanks for having me. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks again to Eric for a really interesting discussion. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. Don't forget to catch next week's episode, which will be focused, as always, on the European markets. We'll be back again the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.